0: It's the mid-1980s and you've heard the magical words, you're going out to eat. Even if you had the option, a Michelin-starred restaurant is the furthest thing from your mind and the last place you would choose. You want the meal option that is not only burned into your mind, but your taste buds, a burger, fries, and soft drink. But where will you go? One place has the menu items you like best But the other has the toys you're desperate for. One has an amazing playland, while the other has the biggest burger your young mind has ever seen. These are the decisions taking place all across the country, as a battleground has been forged to compete with our loyalty and our wallets. I'm Jamie Logie, and this is Everything 80s, a podcast that looks back on a decade that forever changed the way we dress, consume, and connect it. And today it's a trip back in time when fast food restaurants changed the game and the market, all based on a piece of meat between two pieces of bread. This is the history of the 1980s burger wars. Let's begin by meeting our competitors. The focus of the burger wars of the 1980s centers around McDonald's, Burger King, Wendy's, and A&W. We'll start with McDonald's. With origins going back to the 1940s, the company franchised in the 1950s and, by the late 50s, had sold its 100 millionth burger. The popularity of the company grew through the 60s, with the release of items like the filet fish and the Big Mac. New Big Mac Going the into the 70s, McDonald's introduced the McDonald's Play Place, breakfast options, and items like the Quarter Pounder and the Egg McMuffin. In the mid-70s, drive through was introduced, something that would have a much bigger impact on the world of fast food in the 80s than anyone possibly realized. As we enter the 80s, McDonald's only continues to grow in popularity, especially with kids, thanks to a few select items. To begin with, the McDonald's play places introduced in the 70s just continued into the 80s with the opening of more and more locations. Soon, it was easier to find a play place than ever before. And speaking of kids, One specific meal introduced in 1979 became a staple of 1980s kids' fast food culture, the Happy Meal. According to CNN and The Daily Beast, the origins of the Happy Meal come from Guatemala and a franchise owner named Yolanda, who realized the McDonald's serving sizes were too big for little kids and they needed their own kid-friendly options. The execution of the Happy Meal and its packaging came about through Bob Bernstein, an advertising executive who had been working for McDonald's for years. He noticed how glued his son was to the back of the cereal box each morning at breakfast. For kids in the 70s and 80s, the back of the cereal box was like our morning newspaper, and Bernstein realized kids wanted to do something while they ate. This led to the creation of the meal box that included games, puzzles, and comic strips on the outside. The Happy Meal came with a few kid-friendly food items and most importantly, a toy. Through the 1980s, the included toys turned into huge promotional tie-ins and we saw the inclusions of toys and brands like The Muppet Babies, Fraggle Rock, Hot Wheels, Transformers, The Dukes of Hazard, and movies like E.T. and The Fox and the Hound. And that's just a small sampling of the 1980s Happy Meal toys. And then in the early 80s comes one of McDonald's most popular food items ever, which was also a huge hit with kids. It's a food made up of four distinct shapes, a ball, a bell, a bone, and a boot. Designed by a top chef named Rene Arend, who had cooked for royalty in Europe, the bite-sized item began being tested in select markets. Then, in 1983, Chicken McNuggets were finally released to the public. So McDonald's was going strong in the 1980s. But they had major competition from the company that began back in the mid-50s. Even though they started out as Insta Burger King, the company soon franchised. And Burger King, as we now know it, became a national company. In the 60s, they were sold to the Pillsbury Company, which revitalized the company primarily by expanding its menu. It's the company that prides itself on having flame broiled burgers and is home to one of the most famous fast food items of all, the Whopper. always been able to have your Whopper, your way. The focus on not only the Whopper, but the concept of flame broiling was the way Burger King could compete in the 1980s. They promoted the idea of quality and that you were getting something you just took off the grill in your backyard. Burger King made it clear that you could have it your way and even offered customizable salad bars. But it was the burger that was the star of the show. And Burger King made sure to drill that into its employees. In the 80s, Burger King managers were sent to Burger King University. Not Bovine University, but Burger King's own training center to learn the Holy Grail. Of the perfect burger, a United Press International article from 1983 shares that Burger King University was like an intense boot camp, where managers not only learned to run a streamlined franchise, but serve up that patty at a perfect 105 degrees. Burger King was hell bent on trying to take that number one spot from McDonald's, and Burger King University was quote that final pump of corporate adrenaline unquote at this point in the 80s burger king was growing at a rate of 240 to 250 new locations each year they were laser focused on not only taking down mcdonald's but all of fast food referring back to that upi article from 1983 burger king employees were delivered a patriotic message and how Burger King is a part of American history. The training concluded by making the room totally dark while the managers or students saw pictures of the company, their competitors, who they are, when they started and how they fit into all of it. Al Justness, the dean, if you will, of Burger King University back then, shares that, quote, We build up to a feverish pitch with this. At the tail end, we say, now what can you do? This is where we pump them up. It's really very theatrical. The instructor is banging his fists on the table. We put the Burger King pictures up. The lights go black and the theme from Rocky comes on. And they're going, we're going to kill these guys, unquote. The burger wars of the 1980s were very real and very intense. The two big burger companies were already a part of our collective consciousness. For example, the Big Mac jingle of two all-beef patties special sauce lettuce cheese pickles onions on a sesame seed bun was as instinctual to say as reciting off your home address or phone number. The two burger juggernauts also competed against one another with various characters and mascots to appeal to kids. McDonald's not only had Ronald McDonald, but other characters connected to various foods. There was Grimace, the milkshake representative, the Hamburglar, the new McNugget buddies, Birdie, the early bird for breakfast items, the Fry Kids, and the Honorable Mayor McCheese. Through the 60s and 70s, Burger King had an animated small king mascot and going into the 80s had introduced the marvelous, magical Burger King. This was a real-life Tudor-looking character with red hair and a red beard who wore a crown. There were also characters like Sir Shakes-a-Lot and a robot called the Wizard of Fries. How about a shake, Sir Shake-a-Lot? Great! and balloons i doubt they're there i'll pop one and show you it's a lot of hot food. Burger, king. burger king didn't have the happy meal and the toys that came with them but still offered toys for kids my favorite was the king racer a plastic car you assembled yourself you then used a zip stick that pulled through the car, allowing it to race along the ground. And a toy like this was free to kids 12 and under. Burger King is where you could find the Empire Strikes Back collectible glasses, or a popular plush toy like Elf. It was quite natural for these companies to offer products and toys that appealed to children, because children play a huge role in the purchasing decisions for families. Even though I felt like I never got what I wanted growing up when it came to fast food and breakfast cereals, it happened more than I realized. And if you bugged your parents long enough, it may have worked for you too. This is called pester power, and it's a very real term. The concept explained by the Journal of Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, shares that, quote, Children often have the ability to exert influence on familial food purchasing decisions by repeatedly asking parents and caretakers for products not routinely purchased for the family, unquote. Basically, pester your parents long enough and they often just give in. And companies know this works. Especially as it pertains to fast food and the burger wars. According to the International Journal of Multidisciplinary and Current Educational Research, children influence more than 70% of their parents' clothes and fast food purchases. And children under 12 influence their family on a variety of consumer products, ranging from food to appliances and even holidays and cars. But credit to my own mother growing up who was able to fight this pester power off to some degree as I never did get cookie crisp cereal growing up despite me screaming and crying in the cereal aisle for it. But when you combine fast food and toys, you've got pester power driven up to the nth degree. But of course, it wasn't just McDonald's and Burger King controlling the burger market of the 1980s. There are two other notable competitors, both taking a unique approach to get our attention. The first is Wendy's. Dave Thomas opened the first location in November 1969 in Columbus, Ohio. The chain quickly stood out for its unique square-shaped hamburger patties. In November, 1970, Wendy's introduced their pickup window, a concept that was still so new that customers needed instructions on how to talk through the speaker and place an order. And as we head into the 1980s, Wendy's continues to grow through the growing burger war era as they open their 2000th restaurant. And in a few short years, Wendy's will also do something that was not only groundbreaking in the burger wars, but also became a cultural phenomenon. And we'll get back to that in a bit. Next, we have A&W. As far back as some of these companies go, none of them can touch A&W, with origins going back to 1919. It started as a roadside stand by Roy Allen, who then partnered with with Frank Wright. The last names Allen and Wright were shortened into A and W. The company continued to grow through the fifties and sixties and in the mid seventies introduced Great Root Bear. The six foot six furry bear could be found handing out candy and balloons in A and W restaurants. And as the 1980s began, A&W released something to compete in the Burger Wars. Something that, through no fault of their own, backfired spectacularly. Everything 80s will return after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. Even though McDonald's had a big control of the market share, they still needed to up the ante when it came to marketing, promotion, and competing with Burger King. Happy Meal commercials were great, but what about the adult crowd? Well, they came up with one thing as a way to compete with Burger King and their famous Whopper. It was called the McDLT. The McDLT was a cheeseburger, but served in unique packaging, and cheaper than the Whopper. The styrofoam container featured two sides. One side had half the bun and the meat, and the other side had the second half of the bun, lettuce, tomatoes, cheese, and sauce. The idea was to keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold, so the vegetables could remain crisp and not wilt from the hot patty. The McDLT was launched in 1985 with a full-on marketing campaign featuring a pre-Seinfeld Jason Alexander. You say that just once you'd like your hamburger hot and your lettuce and tomato cool and crisp all at the same time? Yeah! Well, I say, you got it. I'm talking McDonald's new lettuce and tomato hamburger, the McDLT. But even with a great lineup of products, characters, and commercials, McDonald's still tried to expand their reach in every way possible, including being featured in the movie Mac and Me. The movie about a mysterious alien creature that escapes from NASA and befriends a young boy also features Jennifer Aniston in her first movie role. The film also features Ronald McDonald, along with an entire dance sequence that takes place in a McDonald's. According to McDonaldsFandom.com, the film, despite being heavily criticized for product placement, had a profit-sharing arrangement with Ronald McDonald House Charities. Even though they may not have been at the level of McDonald's, Wendy's was still able to make a dent in the burger market, and this was through the creation of one of the most famous ads in history. Very big bun, big fluffy bun. It's a very big fluffy bun. Where's the beef? Some hamburger places give you a lot less beef on a lot of bun. Where's the beef? At Wendy's, we serve a hamburger. We must- Released in 1984, the Where's the Beef campaign starred Clara Peller. And was Wendy's way of calling out Burger King and McDonald's for their lack of beef in their hamburgers. If you grew up during this time, you know that this commercial was the definition of viral marketing before that term even existed. It's not only one of the defining commercial campaigns of the 1980s, but ever. The phrase "Where's the beef?" was so big it made its way into the 1984 U.S. presidential election when Walter Mondale used it to question the lackluster program policies of Democratic opponent Gary Hart. When I hear your new ideas, I'm reminded of that ad. Where's the beef? Yeah. <laughs> um yep. If you, let's keep going. You know? <laughs> wait a minute, no. wait a minute, he's going to tell you where <laughs> the beef is. Or <laughs> so the or Where's the beef? One of the most famous catchphrases of all time was not only a cultural touchstone, but a revenue-generating machine. According to a 1987 New York Times article, the success of this commercial led to a 31% increase in sales for Wendy's. With three simple words, Wendy's annual sales hit the $2 billion mark, or nearly $6 billion in today's money. For a company like a and it was also tough to compete with juggernauts like Burger King and McDonald's. But they did come up with something they thought could get them some control of the burger market share. And that was by simply offering more. The quarter pounder from McDonald's was an industry standard. Why not try to outdo them by offering something larger? If Wendy's asked, where's the beef? A&W would show us it was with them. This was the impetus for the A&W 3rd pounder. A creation from the early 80s that backfired by unforeseen and frankly, unimaginable reasons. Quick question, what is bigger? A quarter of a pound or a third of a pound? I admit that math is not my strong suit, but you've also probably guessed that a third of a pound is larger. Well, the American public didn't necessarily know that in the 1980s when a and released the third pounder hamburger. Despite slogans like third is the word, the burgers just didn't sell. But why? You got more burger for around the same price, if not less, than the quarter pounder. The failure of the third pounder is because the average person didn't understand fractions. Consumers thought a quarter sounded more than a third. Why? Why? Because four is a bigger number than three. In the book Threshold Resistance, written by Alfred Tobman, owner of AW Restaurants back then, Tobman shares how they brought in a market research firm to try to figure out what happened. AW had a better and larger product at a better price point, and it still failed because three sounded less than four. Tobman shares that, quote, more than half the participants of the focus groups question the price of our burger. Why, they ask, should we pay the same amount for a third pound of meat as we do for a quarter pound of meat at McDonald's? You're overcharging us, unquote. The baffling revelation showed a company like a that no matter how prepared you are for potential obstacles, especially during the 1980s burger wars, there are some unforeseen things you can never prepare for. The failure of the third pounder, a story even shared on ANW's own website, showed companies how critical precise languages and even a hint of confusion needs to be nipped in the bud or it could cost you millions. But again, who could have ever predicted this issue? Interestingly, years later, McDonald's capitalized on a third-pound burger of their own, but you would know it better as the Angus Burger. As the burger wars of the 80s grew, a focus on convenience became more paramount. The 80s may be seen as the era of true convenience, and there was nothing more convenient, especially for my family back then, than the drive through As important as the restaurants were, the true battleground for fast food and burgers appeared to be the drive-thru. According to Business Insider, by 1987, drive-thru sales accounted for 60% of all fast food sales. Fast food, as the name implies, was already convenient. Not having to get out of your car to even get it was the height of convenience except for the few times when my dad paid at the drive through then drove off forgetting to even pick up the food. But McDonald's and Burger King continue to go head-to-head with one another, especially in their commercials with attack-style marketing. Burger King continued to point out the superior nature of broiling versus frying. A Burger King commercial from 1983 featuring a young Elizabeth Shue asks everyone from McDonald's to leave the room so she can tell viewers that in a nationwide poll, flame broiling beat frying nearly three to one. A few years later, Burger King put out an ad dismissing the McDLT and how you had to eat food served their way and not fixed your way like the Whopper is. Burger King continued to promote the fact that eating their flame-broiled burgers was just like taking one right off your backyard grill. Things also started to get even more cutthroat. Also in 1983, Burger King made an ad in the UK for the Whopper that also questioned McDonald's beef. The ad showed a huge hamburger that said, It's not just big, Mac. And in small print said, Quote, "Unlike some burgers, it's 100% beef," unquote. But McDonald's didn't take this lying down, and this is when lawyers got involved. According to a July 1985 LA Times article, after five days of testimony, Judge John Whitford granted McDonald's an injunction, barring Burger King from using the advertisement that knocked McDonald's best-selling burger, the Big Mac. The article goes on to state, quote, But the judge rejected McDonald's claim that Burger King, home of the Whopper, had maliciously implied that McDonald's hamburgers were less than 100% beef, unquote. The burger wars were so intense because this was a multi, multi multi-billion dollar industry. According to Statista.com, sales of food and drink through the decade in the U.S. alone, generated $120 billion. That's quite a lot when you consider at the start of the decade, a Happy Meal was around $1.10. Or in 1985, when a Big Mac, large soft drink, and supersized fry was just $2.59. In today's money, that revenue for the entire 1980s is in the $300 billion range. But there still were some struggles during the burger wars. For Wendy's, the success of the Where's the Beef campaign eventually wore off, and the company tried some other means to get back into the burger wars. But they launched something that didn't even include burgers. In the summer of 1985, Wendy's launched its breakfast menu, According to a 1986 LA Times article, backed by a $10 million ad campaign, they tried to position themselves as the all-day restaurant. This included omelets made to order, which severely slowed down service. And in the world of fast food, that can be a death blow, especially during a morning breakfast rush. Sales were dropping, but Wendy's then introduced salad bars, and then their newest burger in nearly 17 years, the Big Classic. The Big Classic launched with an ad campaign featuring Scott Fuller who played Nick on Family Ties, and it was meant to compete with the Whopper, the Big Mac, and the McDLT. Burger King then tried something new to boost their share in the burger market by introducing Burger Bundles. These mini cheeseburgers, or sliders, came in a pack of three. According to MASH.com, this was because Burger King saw the trend of burgers going from enormous back to small, similar to the burgers from another burger-based restaurant, White Castle. To create interest, burger bundles were released for a limited time only in 1987. This was at the same time that White Castle released frozen White Castle sliders that you could buy in the grocery stores. These were incredibly popular, and at this point in the 1980 Burger Wars, White Castle had most definitely entered the picture. And before Harold and Kumar, there was no bigger fan of White Castle, especially in the 80s, than the Beastie Boys. Several references to White Castle were made on their seminal album License to Ill from 1986. Like in the song The New Style when they say I chill at White Castle because it's the best. Or in the song Girls with the line and I can always make them smile from White Castle to the Nile. Burger King re-released their burger bundles in 1989, and they re-emerged as the Burger Buddy. But they proved problematic to make. According to Nation Restaurant News, whereas White Castle sliders were cooked on a flat top, Burger King's version was so small they kept falling through the grills. Wendy's and now Burger King were experiencing some significant setbacks during the Burger Wars. According to a 1987 L.A. Times article, by 1987 and going into the later 80s, Wendy's experienced their first quarterly operating loss since the company was founded. Burger King had to lay off 15% of its corporate workforce. Even though just a few years earlier, Wendy's and Burger King were riding high with 3,700 and 4,700 locations respectively, there were some struggles. By 1987 and later into the 80s, McDonald's now had around 9,400 locations worldwide in a big chunk of the $48 billion burger market. It also didn't hurt that McDonald's was outspending both Wendy's and Burger King two to one in advertising. But then Wendy's made a significant rebound. And this was also by capitalizing on smaller portions the way Burger King had seen. After the success of the Where's the Beef campaign and the following dip in profits, Wendy's offered something for people who didn't want a huge burger or a quarter pounder. They offered a two-ounce burger. According to a 2012 Slate article, in the mid-80s, 20% of the company's stores teetered on bankruptcy. But the smaller burger option quickly appealed to the cash-strapped young adult market. This led Wendy's to offer other low-cost options, and in 1989, they released the first fast-food value menu. In just one year sales went up 25%. And with founder Dave Thomas beginning to appear in their commercials, things only continued to go up for the company. Burger King also continued to make strides. And as of 2021, they were closing in on 20,000 locations. But as the 1980s came to a close, it was hard to ignore the power of McDonald's. From the stats released on January 28, 1990, here's what McDonald's success in the 1980s burger wars looked like. Sales had tripled from $5.4 billion in 1979 to $17.3 billion in 1989. Sales outside the U.S. grew six times, From 900 million in 1979 to 5.3 billion in 1989. At the start of the 80s, McDonald's had served their 30 billionth hamburger. By the end of the 80s, it had served its 75th billion. During the 80s, McDonald's even opened locations in places like subways, ferry docks, riverboats, and YMCAs. And possibly the most amazing stat the company added 5,415 new restaurants during the 80s. That's a new McDonald's every 16 hours. Competition forces several things. Creativity, strategy, desperation at times, and innovation. And that's what happened during the burger wars of the 1980s. The changes and innovations introduced during the 80s continue in the industry to this day, like commercial tie-ins for brands or movies, value menus, value pricing, aggressive marketing, and the rise of drive throughs The diversification of menus along with healthier options has carried on into our current era with a big focus on customization and those healthier choices. If you had told me in the 80s that someday you would be able to get a kale salad at a fast food restaurant, I wouldn't have believed you, then asked you, what in the world is kale? Promotional tie-ins with fast food seemed to be perfected in the 1980s as our fast food choices, especially for families with young kids, were dictated by which specific toys were at certain restaurants. Today, there are even more burger options than ever before and more ways than ever to promote them whether that's through traditional media or online and with social media. Back in the 80s, fast food places didn't have that option, and the battleground was through our TVs in our living rooms. The 1980s is considered a golden age for the fast food restaurant industry, and right at the center of it all was the Humble Burger. So that's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you like this episode, here are some suggestions for further listening from my previous episodes that are related to this one. I have an episode all about the pizza wars of the 1980s that pitted Little Caesars, Domino's, and Pizza Hut up against each other. I also have a previous episode about Racks, a fast food restaurant that went the route of being adult fast food. If you remember the commercial spokesperson called Mr. Delicious, you know what I'm talking about. But besides those, there are plenty of other episodes for you to dive back into to remember all these great things from the 1980s. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to the Everything 80s podcast wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss out on new episodes. Thank you again so much for spending your time with me here today. It means the world to me. So I'm Jamie, this has been Everything 80s, but I'll be back soon with a new episode. Don't you dare miss it.